what can we do after Trump? Well, let's hope we get to an after Trump, but let's also find out. We're gonna bring on Anthony Barnett here. He is the founder of Open Democracy and the author of Taking Control, Humanity in America After Trump and the Pandemic. Um, Anthony, welcome, and my first question to you is, are we after Trump? Welcome, uh, James, very great to be on. Uh, we're not after Trump yet, n not at all. Uh, and one of the arguments in the book is that what we face with the possible return of Trump uh, is for the first time in my lifetime, the return of what I call modern fascism. I think the Trump represents a, a genuine, the different kind of threat after the January 6th. And we're in a very bad position at the moment. When I when the book came out uh, at the beginning of this year, and it, 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 what I argue in it is that at that point, Biden was either going to be a transformational president or a transitional one. And it's clear now the verdict is in. He's going to be transitional. And progressives have had a mighty setback over the last few months with, uh, uh, you know, lost voting, uh, voting rights, um, build back better. The environmental program, uh, it's in a very, very dangerous position. Yes, indeed. Uh, so, Andy, I know that you've talked to um, prominent progressives in America and you know, you're know you from the UK. So I'm curious, not what your take is on the right wing. Uh, number one, anyone who doesn't live inside the bubble of America realizes the right wing in America is lunatics, other than, unless they're also fascist wannabes like Viktor Orban in, in Hungary or Bolsonaro in Brazil, etc. Um, I'm curious what your take on Democrats are, uh, whether it's the Democratic leadership like Biden or progressives. Yeah, well, I, I think this is a, a really important issue. Uh, first, I think that the right are not just lunatics. I think there's quite a serious project about imposing minoritarian rule. And if Trump gets control of the surveillance state, we're in for what I mean by modern fascism, and we're in a threat or quite articulated uh, authoritarian rule, which would be very difficult to reverse. So there's a real threat to democracy. And the question of what, what is going to be the future of the left? And one of the questions that I asked in this book, people have said to me, I'm an optimist, but I'm saying, look, it's 50-50 at the moment. In the United States in the 2020 election, Biden got a 7 million plurality, an 8 million, an absolutely astounding number of people voted for him. And when they said the election was stolen, they don't, you know, the right doesn't really think that that wasn't the case. What they're saying is the people shouldn't really be voting for them. They don't accept that those people who are voting were really Americans. That's the danger. And I think on our side, we've got to look at what are our strengths? How come, given the defeat of socialism, given the defeat of left, given the last 40 years of the dominance of the market, how come we are as at least equal uh, I say we in terms of progressive forces, because what's happening in America is going to affect everybody around the world. We're equal to the right, even though they have a rigged system. Where do those strengths come from? And I don't think they come from the traditional political top. They come from feminism. They come from Black Lives Matter, from anti-racism. They come from the whole human rights movement, which is not rooted in market values. They come from environmental consciousness and the sense that, you know, we can see how 
everything fits together, how the systems, the factors are interlocking. They come from the developments of modern science and our sense of our body and ourselves. And so there's within under the last 40 years of the market forces which produced the classic figures now run the Democratic Party, the Biden generation, the Clintons, the Obamas. Underneath this, there were forces opposing marketization. And what we lack is a politics. And my argument here is that what is needed is to combine the need for democracy with the need for welfare and classic economic reforms. And the reason we need this is that one of the things that Trump did was he made voting count. People on the Trump side, why is Trumpism so popular? It's partly because people, his supporters feel empowered by him. And what I think is lacking on the progressive and democratic left is a politics of empowerment that will actually rally people to support. And that, that there's still the old tradition of the patronizing welfare tradition, social democratic tradition, which is a broken one. Right, well, Anthony, I, the Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and Joe Biden are about as inspiring as a wet noodle. So that's not surprising that uh, Democrats have issues here with leadership like that. Um, but have you seen anyone on the progressive side that you think, oh, I, I could see how they might inspire some people and, and create maybe a renaissance within the Democratic Party? Well, I think that there's the millennial generation, AOC, I think is very inspiring, but she also is a very polarizing figure at the moment. And the way that the media introduce her is outrageous. She has, she's got an instinctive and a brilliant capacity to fight back. And I actually find Bernie Sanders a, a very inspiring and articulate figure, but of course, he isn't now of a generation that can really stand for the presidency. And I made this very short film in Washington in March and April of this year. And I was very struck, I was talking to Pramila Jayapal. Now she can't run as president, but she's the head of the, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And she struck me as an admirably intelligent, articulate, political person, the kind we don't yet have here in, in, in the UK, and we have very few of them in Europe, some in the Green Party in Germany, able to link to politics and to organizers outside as well as inside. I talked to Representative Jamie Ruskin, uh, who led the impeachment process of, of uh, uh, Donald Trump. And he was clearly reaching out. He's what you would call, I think what he calls the moral center. He's reaching out to people. He's not simply standing there saying sort of self-righteously, I'm a leftist, which is the kind of cartoon idea of progressives. He's very serious about what he calls the tightrope of trying to save the American system, to save what voting there is, to save the democracy that you have, and at the same time to expand it so that it represents a, a, a true majority of people across the United States, including people in Washington DC, Puerto Rico, you know, who are not even allowed to vote for the president. And I also talked to Representative Ro Kahana, uh, who is, you know, his his uh, uh, district is from the represents Silicon Valley, and and he has a quite articulate and and careful strategic vision. It struck me. Uh, what he calls progressive capitalism, very, very strong on welfare, very strong on giving people free university education, very strong also on, on, on enhancing people's capacities 
with respect to the marketplace. And all of them, what I was very struck by was they were very intelligent, very thoughtful, and were reaching out to create a much larger alliance. And if that if that that is reproduced across the United States and across the Democratic Party, then it certainly has a future if it can reshape itself for the battle of 2024. So um, I'm curious about the difference between the UK and US because it, I think that there are two forces that have destroyed democracy in America. And one is bribery. We allow bribery in America. They're called campaign contributions, and they're unlimited. So Sheldon Adelson, a casino magnate, gave Donald Trump over $100 million two different times, just buying it. He helped Israel purchase the move of their embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He ended the Union rights within the casinos. He ended internet gambling so that more people would be forced into his casinos. We just we have an open auction here in America, and then our media is completely corporate-owned, corporate-controlled, nothing but corporate message. So that's why you'll hear nonstop that bipartisan compromise where the Chamber of Commerce is made happy by corporate Republicans and corporate Democrats is wonderful, and any challenge to that is outrageous radicalism that cannot be tolerated. So that's America, I know America. How does the UK compare to that? Is part of the reason the UK, in my opinion, is better off? I mean, it doesn't get more right wing and ridiculous as we are today. Is that because you guys don't allow bribery? You have some media that isn't completely you know, toxic? I'm curious, I don't know. Well, the, 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 uh, I don't think, well, first of all, let me just challenge somewhat your description of the United States. I completely agree about the role of money and how outrageous it is. But it's also very unpopular, including among Republicans. So there's something really deeply at fault with your democratic system that allows that. And it's not completely true that your media is totally corporate owned. I don't think the New York Times is utterly corporate in its values. Fox may be the dominant, many dominant of the television, uh, uh, TYT isn't. You've got a much more active, uh, independent online media than we have in the United, in the United Kingdom. Uh, and I speak of somebody who founded Open Democracy and we're trying, we're, we're struggling to get one, but we don't have the kind of professionalism and funding yet uh, equal to the progressive media in the United States. Secondly, I think here, um, there are two different things which, which are different. One is Brexit. Now, Brexit is our equivalent of Trump, and Brexit was bought. And millions and millions of, uh, of pounds were poured into Brexit from very dubious sources, which we still haven't traced. So there is definitely is a, a role of corruption in the United Kingdom. It's not as grotesque by any means as what you have in the United States. Uh, um, but it, it, it's, it's certainly very influential. And to give you one example, the, the, uh, uh, the, the current Tory government, okay, it's got rid of Boris Johnson. Um, but Boris Johnson was a kind of amateur. He was a clown compared to somebody like Trump. And at the same time, they passed legislation which was uniform across the United Kingdom, imposing ID cards on voting, which is straight out of the American playbook of voter suppression. 
And that also, uh, uh, Johnson was notorious for taking Russian money. And there's a great deal of high finance corruption of the Conservative Party. And the media here, uh, although we do have The Guardian, which is independent, it's very small, its circulation is about 150,000. It has a very good international website, but it's quite marginal. Whereas the, the big media, the big newspapers, you have Murdoch who made his first fortune here, the Sanya and Zatan, the Times, the Daily Mail, which is a rancorous right-wing daily, the Telegraph, which is owned by uh, from a tax havens, uh, by 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 twin the Barclay brothers, of whose money was uh, you know uh, comes from very dubious origins. So I think that the that sense of you've got a a, a pro market anti government system outside of politics trying to crush our democratic politics. This is I'm afraid is true here as well as in the United States. Well, you know, you give me a tiny bit of hope there, Anthony. We're massively out of time, but um, but I I like hearing that our independent media is stronger. Uh, it makes you know it gives us at least something to hang our hat on, uh, and uh, and that's true. I mean, TYT itself is one of the, the largest is, media companies. Yeah. Thing is, the, the thing that is really important to remember is that there is a progressive majority. It's not a far left majority, which is what the kind of the right wing media say, but there is a progressive majority. And this doesn't have proper political expression. And one of the things that we need to do, I say we in terms of those of us who are creating independent media and having arguments and discussions like this, is to work out how we get the messages across, which will mobilize people to vote and also shift the thinking and the understanding and the capacities of those who are elected. Yep, uh, and I also got something else out of this interview, the uh, word rancorous, which I rather enjoyed. Okay, so the uh, book is called Taking Control, Humanity in America After Trump and the Pandemic. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us, really appreciate it. Very good to talk with you, take care. You too. All right, now let's talk to a woman who is pulling off a bit of a miraculous upset, at least as things stand now. Yulene New is running in what is now the infamous 10th Congressional District in New York. And she is one of actually several progressives in that race, honestly. Yulene, first of all, welcome to the show. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me. No problem, but I'm gonna dive right in. Okay, so first I have a warning for you. We interviewed Bill de Blasio about a week ago. He dropped out right afterwards. So I'm not saying anything, so just be careful. <laughs> okay, uh, but uh, so he was in that race. Mondaire Jones, who's a current congressman, is in that race. There's a number of others that are in that race. It's a very progressive district, so it makes sense that there's a couple of progressives in there. Um, but the poll came out, part of the reason that de Blasio dropped out was because he came in at 3%. Mondaire Jones came in at only 8%, you came in at 16%, so, and leading the pack. Um, so my first question is, how'd you do that? <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, I've already represented part of this district in the state assembly for the past six years. Um, so my entire assembly district is actually within New York 10. Um, and I know that, you know, we have an incredible field operation. I have to credit my, and my amazing supporters for this and also my amazing staff for this because we have uh, over now 850 volunteers and I can't even make that up. 
That's amazing. Yeah, no, that that's a big number. I always uh, tell the story. Diane Feinstein. We had a progressive running against her last time, and we had lots of volunteers too. And then we checked Feinstein's website to see where you could volunteer. She wasn't even asking for volunteers because uh, she had so much money. She didn't care. But for progressives, you need volunteers, and 850 is a very impressive number. So uh, I get that. So tell us more about the dynamics of this race, because um, you know, for 98% of the races, we have a progressive against an awful establishment, corporate-backed, you know, uh, Democratic leadership-backed billionaire heiress, right? That's usually how it goes. Um, but so help uh, progressives understand why they should pick you instead of one of the other folks in this race, because this one's unique. Yeah, so I think I have to like think about a little bit back to why I even got into, um, you know, how I got into politics in the first place. Like when I was young, I thought that government was something that just happened to me, right? Laws just happened to me. Um, regulations were just something that we just had to obey. Um, that and and everybody probably feels this way right now in America that you know we just can't make make that change that we want to see, right? Um, and 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 I always felt like there was some big secret to accessing government. But the more I learned about government, and when I was an intern, I started to see this, and I realized that there's actually no big secret. What what was happening is that there are powerful people that don't want us to realize that we. The people have the power, right, to make that change if we want to make things change. I'm running to show people that when we mobilize and come together, we can make government work for us. And you know, I think that right now um, our country is in crisis. We know that we are seeing people getting killed every single day. People are, are losing their rights. We are we've lost our bodily autonomy. Um, we've seen you know mass murder after mass murder after mass murder, and there's so many shootings and. What we right now need in our country is obviously political courage, and I think that that comes from, um, you know, having a good lens on what it is that um, that our country uh, needs to see things through, right? And I think that, you know, for a real progressive, for defining what progressive means, I think that we have to be people who are looking through a lens of of. You know, racial justice, social justice, environmental justice, and always making sure that we're centering disabilities, and then making sure that we have you know economic justice at the center of all of it, and making sure that everything's interconnected in a way that helps everybody. Because if we are fighting for a more transparent and a more accessible and a more just and fair government and society, then that's really what makes us set apart. So your district also is a bit of a dichotomy. You've got a lot of young progressives in there, but you also have Wall Street in your district, so that's interesting. And then, you know, and you've got a situation here where you're a big proponent of criminal justice reform, including ending cash bail, but at the same time, you're also the victim of some hateful attacks. And the Asian community at large, in both in New York, your district, and you've got two Chinatowns in your district, which is amazing. That might be the only district in America that has two of them. And and but all across the country, Asians have been targeted by hate crimes. And so you've got that your own community there, and I can say your own community because you've got two Chinatowns in your district. Like I said, is very concerned about that crime. So how do you square that? How do you talk to all everybody in the community? about criminal justice reform while keeping everyone safe. 
Well, I think that, you know, first off, criminal justice reform is to keep people safer, right? And it's also, you know, talking about making sure that we have um, the kinds of uh, changes that are actually going to make us have real community safety. And when we're talking about real community safety, we have to talk about prevention, right? And when we're talking about all of the hatred and the violence that has been um, happening towards um, all of our different communities, you know, there's been so much anti Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-Asian hatred. Um, this has been, you know, you know, there's no secret weapon or some like kind of silver bullet or some kind of magic wand to wave over us to make things different. What is happening right now is that there is um, basically what we are seeing is basically that there is state-sanctioned racism. That is constantly um, happening, right? I mean, the anti-Asian sentiment is so deep, and it's part of what our country is built on, right? We have the, um, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act, the Japanese internment, the, you know, uh, the the uh, miscegeny laws, you know, the things that make it so that you know there is a question of uh, whether or not um, this community belongs here. Right, and um, I think that the way that we change that is to make sure that we are dismantling piece by piece by piece um, all of these different pieces of legislation that have this racism built into it. Um, making sure that we have representation at the highest levels, whether it's um, you know our representation in Congress, whether it's representation um, in our state legislature, our city legislature, and all of the different agencies, including the NYPD, including you know all of the different you know places that we actually need to see a change and then actually have representation to talk about our community's needs. I think that that's really, really important. Making sure that we have language access so that people can actually have the social services that they deserve and get to the social services that they deserve is so important. Making sure that we actually have you know, people who are on the ground, the community organizations fully funded in order to make sure that they can continue to do the work that they're doing, but also amplify and grow the work that they're doing so that our communities are actually feeling safer. Because all of that is prevention and it, and, 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 and that way, you know, there's more visibility and then people also realize that we belong here. And that's part of the reason why I'm running. It's also to make sure that you know people, even when I'm getting all of this hatred and you're seeing it online, um, when when people are seeing you know all of this vitriol, it's to make me scared, right? And it's it's really to try to make it so that I will stop or that I will stop speaking out and that I will stop being visible. But I think that the only way to change that is to make sure that we are more visible, um, to make sure that people understand that we belong here and that we are part of this country and to make sure that people understand that you know we have, um, we have representation and that is uh, something that means a lot and changes yeah. people's perceptions in whole. So of course I agree with almost everything you said. Uh, a lot of people don't recognize Asians have suffered more legal discrimination in this country than almost anyone else. I say almost anyone else because the Chinese were literally the only ones by law excluded from America saying you cannot come to America. That was a law that was passed and and the Japanese of course were the only ones interned. Obviously other races have suffered terribly here as well. So and, and I think criminal justice reform, I agree with you. Can lower crime, but that's a prelude to me asking about cash bail. So I wanted to end cash bail as well, but I'm now concerned that uh, that there was something I did not expect that happened. Uh, I and I should have known better because I went to law school. But uh, a giant number of crimes are called misdemeanors that are actually violent. Um, and so in New York, there's been some spectacular cases. Lee Zeldin, a representative, was attacked. That guy's got released. I don't know if it was. 
ending cash bail that did it, I don't know. Uh, in There was a subway attack there, there where the woman got feces smeared on her face and the guys let go right away, etc. And it's driving people crazy, right? So did we make a mistake there in ending cash bail or what's, what's your t- take on that? So we actually didn't end up implementing the role, the the bail reforms that we had actually written into law, and I think that bail reform people don't really understand what bail reform is, and I think that we have to really talk about that, right? The judges all still have judicial discretion, and it is something that I think people don't realize, and I also. Um, think that people don't realize that the reason why um, we talked about you know having bail reform is because first off the concept of bail is actually um, you know rooted in slavery and um, the reason why uh, you know it's so unfair is because it's based off of your means and so two people. Uh, you and I, we could commit the same crime. Um, and because um, I'm wealthy and you're not, um, and the bail that was set was a certain amount, and I can pay it and you couldn't, um, I go home anyway. And even though we commit the same crime, I go home and you have to sit in Rikers. Yeah, no, I know that's why I was. That's why I'm in favor of ending cash bail. And obviously, you're making a devastating point in the case in New York that you guys didn't end cash bail. So there goes that, right? Yeah, we um, end cash bail, and I think that that's why it's so confusing for people because they are still seeing that you know when when a desk ticket is issued wrong, or if a judge made a judicial discretion that somebody could leave, or if somebody you know who had committed a particular incident or crime, you know they. Actually, there was no cash bail set in the first place. In you know, in any time period, if that was already something that was you know, or or if they paid the cash bail, you know, yeah, um, and you know that then they were you know let go, you know, and so like I think that that is what people are blaming a lot of um, things on, but I don't think that that is the reason for um, a lot of the things that we are seeing. Well, I think that if want yeah. to stop repeat offenders or recidivism, there's a lot of different things that we can do to stop recidivism. Yeah, and so in New York, given that it wasn't ended, it's definitive. So it, 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 then I think the judges are using the wrong discretion. They should have never let those folks out, in my opinion. Anyways, um, so Yulene, I wanted to ask you one more question. So also what distinguishes sometimes progressives from one another is their willingness to challenge democratic leadership. So we've had tons of progressive candidates on the show and they all are lions during the primaries. And then if they win and they go into Congress, then they are taught that objecting to democratic leadership is the biggest crime in America. And so I'm gonna ask you, I don't know that you know, I can really trust anyone to do it anymore. But if you win and you go to Congress, uh, will you defy Nancy Pelosi if she's opposed to a progressive position, which is, by the way, almost every time? <laughs> I think it depends on what the issue is, obviously, and I think that it depends on you know what you know what what stance I'm taking or what it, what uh, values that I'm upholding, of course, which are you know of course progressive values from my end. Um, but I think that you know. I think uh, I, my track record is pretty clear that, I mean, 
you know, even when I felt like I was alone um, and it was important for me to show my district what it was that I was working on in Albany and telling folks, you know, this is the reason why I'm going to be voting no on this thing, or this is the reason why I'm going to be standing up to this thing. You know, it was always about providing accessible and transparent um, representation. And I just want to give an example of the, um, you know, uh, austerity budget um, that was proposed by our then governor, Governor Andrew Cuomo, um, which was uh, in March of 2020, during the uh, very beginning of the very uh, worst part of the pandemic. And that was when it was kind of just getting really kind of ramped up. And we were about to pass a budget that was um, a, a austerity budget instead of one that would invest in our communities in the way that I felt like were very important at a time when we needed to um, be able to stop a uh, really incredible, what I knew was going to be a recession coming up, which we're in now. And I knew that uh, we needed to be investing in our healthcare during a global pandemic. We needed to be investing in our social services during a global pandemic. And we needed to be investing in our public schools during a global pandemic. But instead, he cut across the board. He cut healthcare, he cut social services, he cut education. And I knew that that wasn't a budget that um, was actually going to help us. And there is actually um, you know, a floor speech that I did to make sure that people understood where I was coming from. And when I gave that speech, um, a lot of my colleagues also started Talk to me about why I was saying what I was saying, and then, um, and then we we had formed quite a bit of a coalition to where we almost um, overturned the budget. It it only passed by one vote, and so I think that it's really important for us to speak out when we see something is wrong. Um, I was also one of the first to speak out um, about the campaign uh, finance issues um, that Andrew Cuomo had, and I was also you know even though he was our governor, even though a lot of people um, felt it was very frightening to speak up. Against against him, I felt like it was important to. And I also made sure to vote against you know, him having certain special executive powers during a time when, you know, with the language that it used actually very similar to the language of the Japanese interment executive order directives. And I think that it was interesting that it was something that was passed in the middle of the night and with very little scrutiny um, and he didn't need those uh, executive powers. What he, he didn't need the legislators to give up our powers to give to the executive um, to be able to make certain directives because he could have used um, the uh, abilities of the, um, you know, the, the uh, commissioner, uh, the health commissioner. And so we needed to make sure that we stepped up and stood up against those moments um, and had good leadership, you know, powerful leadership and political courage to be able to do that. And I think that every single time I had a track record of being willing to step up. And I think that, you know, we have to make sure that we are doing that when we need to in order to fight for the people. Because I don't want to just be there to save a seat. I want to be there to save my people. Yep. And and look, I've read the platform. And first of all, that is excellent evidence that you would stand up to democratic leadership. And and you know, in favor of all the progressive positions, back to her supporters called the Green New Deal, as in N I O U. <laughs> your last name is spelled, which leads perfectly to NewForNewYork.com is the website. That's N I O U for New York.com. There it is. We'll put the links down below if you're watching later on YouTube or Facebook. Easy to click those. 
Yulene uh, New, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you so much for having me. So good to meet you in person. No <laughs> kind problem. of. All right, <laughs> take care.